You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey guys, it's Sarah, and this week I am here with Just Grace. Hey! And uh, Amanda and Chelsea could not make it today just with some scheduling conflicts and some sick kiddos. So unfortunately, you have to listen to just the two of us today, but um, hopefully you'll be okay with that. Um, This episode is a part two of the case of Brian Wells. So if you have not yet listened to part one, make sure that you do go back and listen to that from last week. And uh, it was episode 24. Um, We are literally starting in the middle of the timeline. So you'll definitely want to go back and listen to the first one so that you know where we are when we are jumping into the story today. So where we left off last time is right as the uh, bomb was detonating. We said that the bomb did go off before the bomb squad was able to arrive. So, and that happened a little bit after three that the bomb went off. So we're going to 3.04 PM is when the bomb squad was called. Traffic in the area delayed the arrival of the bomb squad. And when they were about three minutes out from the scene, right around 3.18 PM is when the bomb detonated. Um, More graphic content here. I know I gave that warning last week and that'll continue through the rest of this episode as well. But when the bomb detonated, it blew a quote fist sized hole in Wells's chest, unquote. And that did kill him within moments, but it was not instantaneous. Yeah, that bothers me. Just knowing that he suffered like that, even if it's just for moments, just I don't know. I, just because he didn't die instantly, it just yeah skeeves me out. Um, especially because that whole time he was saying, like, I'm not kidding, guys. This is this is really a bomb. I this is not me. I'm not lying. This is gonna go off, and it did. Now, I do want to clarify that from the time the bomb squad was called, they did everything that they could. They didn't delay. There wasn't anything that they could have prevented. It was just that they got stuck in that traffic. And I saw, I think it was when I was watching the documentary, they actually said the reason that the traffic built up so much was because police were closing down the area and cars had to reroute. And that's what ended up causing the traffic that made the bomb squad get there later. Did they not, did the bomb squad vehicle not have lights on it? I mean, it might've, this can't be that uncommon as of a like situation. It might've. And honestly, I mean, they were called at three Oh four. They got there in 14 minutes. Um, or sorry. Mm, No. Okay. They got there. The bomb detonated in 14 minutes. They got there in 17 minutes, depending on where they were. And I doubt the bomb squad is located three blocks away from the bank. Um, You know, Erie's not a super 
high crime in the realm of explosives area that they would just, you know, always have a bomb team ready to deploy. So, I mean, they got there really quickly. A lot of times when we think about emergency response, we think of, you know, highways where there's a shoulder that you can pull off on. Um, From what I saw, and Amanda might know a little bit more um, that she can kind of chime in maybe on Facebook when the episode comes out. From what I've seen, it's just kind of like in my area, I think of like Mechanicsburg and the Carlisle Pike um, or even like driving through Harrisburg where it's kind of shops on either side, a median down the middle, and then just two or three lanes that go right to the edge. So Mm-hmm. It's to get an emergency response crew through, even with lights and sirens, you have to have cars kind of inching just to make enough room. And it doesn't always work the way it should, in theory. Um, yeah, that's fair. I was kind of imagining highway yeah. as well. Yeah. And so. it's. Um, most of their drive was probably highway. They probably were, you know, but when they got off onto Peach Street, um, they would have had to fight some of that traffic. Um, now, there are people that say the bomb squad should have been called earlier, which fair. Um, I do understand why the police were securing the scene. And I don't know what goes into calling the bomb squad. I don't know if it's just, hey, we think there's a bomb you need to come or if they have to confirm that it's actually a bomb before they call them out. Um, I I don't know if there's a more formal procedure, but um, either way, I mean, they got there pretty quickly, but I can kind of see both sides of it it definitely would have been helpful to have them there 10 minutes earlier. Um, Now, Lamont King, which is the PSP trooper that I talked about a lot last week, said that the general consensus was that it was a fake bomb. They didn't think that it was real, basically until they started to hear it ticking. Um, Wells was talking very calmly. He was just sitting there asking to get the handcuffs off. He was nervous, but he wasn't agitated. He wasn't really up in arms about anything. He just wanted the collar off of him, and he was willing to sit there and say, I'll do what you need to do. Just get this thing off of my neck. Um, King did say that once they started to hear the beeping, they noticed Wells' entire demeanor changed. Um, And he said in the documentary, quote, I think it's at this time he realizes this is a real bomb. I don't think he realized it until it started beeping. Um, He being Wells, not realizing that it was a bomb until it started beeping. Um, And then King also said, when referring to the moment that it actually detonated, quote, his eyes got real wide and then went to the back of his head and that was the end of him. And that just... I can't. So they were under the impression that it was a fake bomb, but this is something that's strapped to a human's neck. I mean, why not just be safe? (laughs) I mean, I get what you were saying about like what goes into calling the bomb squad, but I mean, it's attached to someone in a way that you can't just 
pull it off. So right. I don't better safe than sorry in this situation. Right. It's it's saying. not just a bomb that was, you know, slipped under the shirt. I mean, it it was literally a giant handcuff that was around his neck. So yeah, um I I definitely I agree with with what you're saying. Um they did in the docu-series talk to the bomb squad commander and he said they were four blocks away when that bomb went off and that Wells was still breathing until the moment right before they arrived. So however long it took them to get that four blocks, which again, there was that traffic, even if we're generous and say it only took a minute or two minutes for them to get there, he was still breathing until they literally pulled up. And those Uh, last couple minutes, just, I can't fathom. That's awful. Yeah. Um, Now, the the bomb squad commander did say when they got there, it was evident that he was already deceased. um, And he still had part of the device secured to his neck. Um, So, like I said, when it detonated, it was that fist-sized hole in his chest. So, it was that shoebox part that, you know, the guy described it looked like a shoebox under the shirt. That was the part that exploded. The bomb itself was not around his neck. It was just hooked around his neck. Um, Right. So they made sure that there were no more explosives and then searched the vehicle to make sure that there were not any explosives in his vehicle either. And then, um, you know, like ambulance crews came in and kind of went through the rest of the scene. Now, because this occurred in the era of 24-7 media news, there were live cameras rolling at the time of the incident. However, due to a technical error, the live feed was not actually playing when the bomb itself detonated, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, thank God. I mean, I think of 9-11 when, you know, the first tower went down, so they had all the news cameras on and... Millions of people saw the second tower get hit. And I can't imagine watching something like this where you're seeing the individual person. Yeah, for sure. Die on live air. I mean, 9-11 was traumatizing, but you weren't seeing the individual people in that moment. So definitely a good thing that that technical error happened. Um now, the footage was still recorded. It just wasn't live streamed. Cameras were still rolling. It just didn't make it to the actual TVs. So the news station did give the video as evidence to the FBI. And that footage is included in the docuseries at multiple points. And I think Chelsea and I both mentioned this last week. Um, it's not super graphic. It's pretty far away. It's pretty fast. Um but just kind of be aware. You always know when it's coming. So if you do choose to watch this just kind of know that it might um, be a little bit graphic, but you always know when it's coming if you need to turn away for a couple seconds. Like I said, it, it does happen really quickly, though, and you can't really see details of the explosion. And when they show some close-ups later, everything is blurred out. So um, it's not too bad, but it is there. So when it came time to start investigating this, there was a little bit of a power struggle and a fight for who had jurisdiction over the case. PSP said it was their case to work because it 
occurred in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania State Police wanted to take over. The ATF said it was their case because of the use of the explosive device. And the FBI said it was their case because of the involvement of a bank being, you know, federal money. Um, In the end, the FBI wound up with top jurisdiction, but local and state police and the ATF assisted in the investigation. Um, And if you want to look up any of the case files, it is FBI major case number 203, um, 203, 203, whatever. When the investigation started, they went to Brian's house and they found an address book with the names and numbers of prostitutes and no physical evidence that linked him to the crime itself or the plot of the crime. Um, It was a pretty messy house. And I think I was texting. I think I was texting my friend Trish and we were going back and forth because she was watching Hoarders as I was rewatching the docuseries. And I said, well, if you just switch over to this, you'll basically still be watching Hoarders. It was just, there was a lot of stuff in the house all over. Um, but through all of it, they found nothing linking him to the actual crime or the plot. I feel like I watched that documentary a couple times and all of the houses they yeah. looked in kind of look like they belonged on hoarders. Yeah. Yeah. These were not clean people. No. Yeah. And I assume you're referring to like Marge and Bill and like their houses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they were, they were rough. Um, Now, when they went to the actual pizza delivery site, which was that transmission tower, state police did gather some important evidence. They were able to recover tire impressions that matched Wells's vehicle. They found shoe impressions that matched Wells's shoes, and they actually found scuff marks near his shoe prints that indicated some sort of struggle. Uh, This is a really small piece of evidence, but it became really integral in determining whether Wells was previously involved in the plot or just kind of coerced into it, like we talked about last week. Um, Investigators took every step to try to develop DNA or fingerprints or any sort of forensic evidence, and they really couldn't find anything. One of the investigators said they just didn't have much luck with that in this case. Um, At this point in time, investigators came up with three scenarios. One, Wells committed the crime on his own. He wrote all the notes. Uh, There was nobody else in on it. He put the collar bomb around himself, but messed up somewhere with the detonation. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I... I think if I knew a live bomb was strapped to me, I would not be as calm as he was. And why would you strap it around your own neck like that so it's impossible to get off? Yeah, I think... I mean, no. (laughs) I think the theory in that was, well, if I don't get away with this, then I'll just die rather than go to prison. Mm. But it doesn't fit what we know about his personality. So it's a stretch. Or his last moments. Right, right. It's definitely a stretch. Um, The second scenario that they came up with was that he was abducted by others. Um, So I feel like abducted is a bit of an odd word, but that he was coerced into it by other people. Um, And the third theory is that Wells and Panetti, who Panetti was a coworker from the pizza shop. And we'll talk about him in just a little bit. Uh, this theory is that they planned it together. 
um, and that somehow Wells wound up being the one that had uh, the bomb around his neck. Um, So that's just kind of where they started. We will definitely dive the deepest into that second theory that he was coerced by other people. But at this point, when investigators come up with this, they have no idea who those other people, who the other players might be. Um, they did look at what he had on him. And part of that was the cane gun that we talked about. They tested it. It was loaded. It would have fired. Um, it functioned properly. It was made of wood and metal and profilers believe that whoever built the gun and the collar was likely a handyman who knew how to make things like this, which duh. I mean, if they made it, then clearly they're capable of making it. I I just want to see that cane gun so like in person. Yeah. Yeah. So badly. Yeah. No, I'm with like, you. Like wow. It's impressive. Um they also said that this person would have to be patient, deceptive and secretive. Um that being in control is important to this person and that is made evident by their attempts to tightly control Wells's actions and law enforcement's actions. Um Immediately, they found two suspects. The first was a boyfriend of one of the sex workers from his list in um, his house. He had a history of a military background with explosives. He was African-American, which remember the story that Wells told the police was that three black guys put it around his neck. Um, There was no further evidence found to connect him, and he was eventually let go, um, and cleared. There was another suspect then. Um, and I guess it, it kind of connects more to the idea of Wells and Panetti being in on this together. Uh, it was a former disgruntled pizza shop employee. Uh, but when they looked into his story, he had a good alibi and it was, um, confirmed by other people and, they determined that he was not related to this case at all. So just like to know about the first potential suspect, I was actually just listening to um, Bailey Sarian's new podcast earlier. It was like the third episode and just the history of like white people just being like a black guy did it. I mean, not surprising, just yeah shitty i was just listening to one so common i forget if it was today or yesterday um but i was listening to one where a a woman was assaulted and said that her assaulter was a light-skinned african-american and then they ended up sending a very dark-skinned african-american who had an alibi to jail because it was I forget when that was. It was mid 1900s. I mean, it was a, a long time ago, yeah. but he, this guy was in jail for like 40 years for a crime that he didn't do because Holy shit. that was, that was the world at that point, or at least that was America at that point. I don't want to say it was the whole world. I mean, but and this wasn't that long ago. This was 2003. It's just like, just just tell him a bunch of black guys did it like it's so common i mean so i've heard it so many times yeah and look at a lot of 
Pennsylvania, especially rural Pennsylvania towns, and you see a lot of just ingratiated racism in the counties. And I'm not saying Erie County is necessarily like that, but, you know, it's it is a more rural area and you see a lot of that still. I still hear it when I talk to families where I work that make certain comments and I'm like, y'all it's 2021 off of that tangent though. Um, it, it definitely was something that whoever truly was involved in telling him say that it was black guys they knew they'd be able to get away with saying that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, but both of those suspects were found to be completely unrelated to the case. They were both cleared. Um, now, Jason Wick was working with the ATF on this case. Um, now, he previously worked as part of the evidence collection team in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, as well as part of the 9-11 Shanksville evidence collection team. Um, as he worked with what he had, he really couldn't match any tools specifically to the markings and the cuts on the bomb. Um, he realized that it was going to be a long-term investigation and not short. This wasn't going to be something that we solved over the weekend. It was going to take us a long time to kind of break this down and figure it out. He also pointed out that the bomb didn't shrapnel as the creator intended. Um, the metal that was around it that kind of made the shoebox shape that encased everything had been um like spliced kind of so it was cut almost the whole way through in about one inch squares so it was cut top to bottom and left to right in these one inch squares but it was still held together so that when it exploded it would shrapnel out the back rather than just kind of push a little bit against this the steel or whatever metal it was i forget what metal it was um so they're thinking that it was supposed to be a much more harmful bomb but it didn't explode the way that the creator had intended it to um now that all to be said he did still have a very severe wound that was one inch deep and eight or ten inches wide um, and Jason, yeah, right. I mean, one inch deep in your chest, like you've got maybe not even a full centimeter of skin above your chest plate and your ribs. Like that's an inch is very deep when you're looking at your chest cavity. Um, so I guess I was thinking it was like all the way through, but it was more of like a giant crater. Yeah kind of that's why they kind of described it as like a fist punch like a crater is probably a better way to describe it because a crater has like that one deep spot and it's kind of yeah i don't know how to describe that um oh talk about graphic (laughs) yeah um but jason wick was quoted as saying i believe he was meant to die that day you know, the bomb wasn't a scare tactic. It was an explosive. And that was Jeez. the goal. Um, so he was saying that he couldn't match any tools to it. Does that mean like strange things were used 
to create it so it was hard to pinpoint what was used i'm not entirely sure um i kind of took it to mean either strange tools or um really good craftsmanship so a lot of times in something homemade you would expect you know um uneven cuts or you know you could see where maybe a blade missed um or you know something like that but that it was very smooth um and maybe even i'm thinking if you you know you have a sheet and you have to cut it to make it into a rectangle you have to weld and i wonder if there were really clean weld marks or something like that but um he just said you know he couldn't really match any tools that he thought would match up with what happened um and what it looked That's like interesting or anything that you know like if they could have pulled any sort of marks like from where it was kind of like that serrated back piece um or that scored back piece um it exploded so if you could have gotten anything from that it was in pieces so can you trust what you can pull from it so um that's kind of what i took from that but i'm not entirely sure gotcha um he also said it probably took at least a month to assemble this bomb uh, the collar, like I said before, was like a handcuff. Um, and there's a lot more details on the first episode of the docuseries about how the bomb was constructed and what it looked like. And they go into some technical terms that I just don't know. So um, I'm not going to try to talk about them like I do. Uh, but a lot of those details from the ATF are in the first episode of that docuseries. Um, something that was interesting is that there were a lot of red herrings in the device in an attempt to throw off the bomb squad. Um, there were wires that led nowhere, a cell phone that did nothing, all of that kind of stuff. Um, in the end, it was just two pipe bombs with two timers. Um, but there were so many red herrings that if somebody had gotten to it, before it detonated, um, there would have been too many things to try to figure out and it likely would have just gone off anyway. Um, there were also very wordy instructions and a warning label on the bomb. Um, the collar had four key locks and one tumbler lock, but there were four key holes, um, with only two locks. So you had to have the right key and put it in the right place to be able to get it off. Um, and then investigators also said that the scavenger hunt aspect of everything, you know, where they told him go to this place and then go to this place. And he was, you know, going through the bushes and McDonald's to look under the rock and get the notes and whatnot, um, really just ran him in circles around the town rather than giving an escape path. Um, I think, I forget if Amanda mentioned it in our recording last week or if she just mentioned it to us in talking, but Peach Street is right off the highway. All he would have to do is get out to the highway and go one way or the other, and he could be in either Ohio or New York very quickly because, you know, he was up at the very tippy top part of the state. I mean... I'm pretty sure it's I-90 that just runs between them. And he easily could have just gotten on there 
and gone one way or the other and been able to get out of the state, um, which probably wouldn't have helped him. But staying in the same town is definitely not going to help you. Um, so that kind of falls back in line with the idea that um, Jason Wick said with I, believing that he was meant to die that day. Um, and they did find out through timing, even with, you know, no traffic, knowing where everything was, figuring everything out on the first try, um, he would not have been able to finish that route in the time that was given before the bomb went off. Um, again, just kind of further solidifying that idea. So when they started working to create a profile for the mastermind and murderer in this crime, investigators came up with the following criteria. Someone who is very frugal, a pack rat who might save scrap metal, someone who is mechanically inclined and could hide a violent nature, a hoarder who is comfortable with shop machines and power tools, someone who had access to work with those types of machines alone, someone who took pride in creations with multiple purposes, and someone with a violent past and or a superiority complex. So there's a lot to unpack there, and it's a long list. But um, that's kind of what they came up with based on the very limited amount of actual evidence that they had. At first, a lot of tips came in, but nothing ever really came from the tips. Um, once a little bit of time passed, it kind of fizzled out, and then because it really doesn't have much forensic evidence, there's not a whole lot they can do. Um, one of the investigators said someone needs to spill a secret because that's the only way that we're going to get information about this. Um, now, in order to preserve as much evidence as possible, the decision was made by the coroner to surgically decapitate Wells. Uh, the coroner who made the decision said, quote, it was probably still is the most difficult decision I've ever made. It was done in a very caring way, but it's difficult to describe, unquote. Wells's family did not feel the same way. Uh, Jean Hyde, and I think that's how you pronounce her last name. Um, it's either Hyde or Heed. Uh, she's one of Brian's sisters, and she gave a public statement about the impact of Brian's death and the investigation on their family. Um, she first learned of her brother's suffering on the news, which is another reason that 24-7 media coverage is horrible in situations like these. Um, the family was extremely frustrated because the entire time that he was complying with what the police were saying, they still had guns pointed at him, which if he's going to explode and he's not moving, why do you need to have guns pointed at him? Cause if he's sitting on the ground, it's not like he's going to get closer to you. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know the full situation. Um, yeah. Maybe they were just afraid that, I mean, he was out of his mind. Maybe they thought he was going to jump up and run at them. Well, that's true. I mean, people have done crazier shit. Very true. Yeah. Like a suicide mission. Right. 
True. I mean, if you have a bomb strapped around your chest and they think that you're the only one doing it, then what's going to stop you? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, the family was also frustrated that there was no ambulance at the scene until after the bomb detonated. Uh, the decision that was made to decapitate him to preserve the bomb was also very difficult for the family. Gene said, and this quote is taken from uh, the Netflix docuseries. I did not speak with the family. Um, quote, this beheading of Brian took us took from us the closure we sought by being able to view him at the funeral. Tears streamed down mom's face as she learned the news that Brian's body was not fit for open casket viewing. More respect was shown for the destructive device than for Brian's body. She also stated that, quote, what happened to Brian was monstrous, and she voiced her anger over the, quote, absence of clarity and truth in the investigation. And I can't blame her for that at all. Like, I totally understand how the fam. well, I don't understand, but like, I get that the family feels this way, especially if they feel like the, like, investigators weren't super upfront with them. But I'm also trying to think, like, what else could you do? I mean, his mom wanted him to be fit for viewing at a funeral, but like, would you leave the bomb around his neck i guess the thought is you could pro i mean it's metal so you could probably cut it off um but i also understand they didn't know if there were other bombs included in that bomb so i mean i i get what the coroner is saying that it it's the most difficult decision that he's ever had to make yeah it had to be and i mean they're preserving evidence, supposedly, right. and I'm sure the family wants to know the truth. So, yeah, that's got to be a really hard decision to make. Yeah. I feel like I kind of see things differently because my whole family is just like cremate us, like, because don't spend the money on embalming and, you know, caskets and all that so expensive. So, I mean, in my mind, if it happened... I would hate it, but I would also know that the end result would have been cremation. But having the mom's wish being that open casket option um, would definitely be difficult. Yeah, I'm kind of about the whole like cremation thing too yeah. or like don't spend like fifteen thousand dollars on a funeral but i mean especially right. the older generation that's just how they get like closure so yeah i get it you know kind of from both sides yeah um so are you ready for it to get weirder yes because it's gonna get weirder this episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. 
highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. So I mentioned Panetti earlier. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about him now. Uh, The other delivery driver from the pizza shop, who is named Robert Thomas Panetti, was discovered unresponsive on Sunday, August 31st. And it was definitely suspicious just with the timing of everything. Um, There was no pathological condition evident when the autopsy was completed, meaning it didn't look like it was a stroke or a heart attack or um, anything like that. Apparently, Panetti was very nervous, uh, looking for protection and feared that someone was coming for him after the explosion. Investigators met him at the pizza shop to interview him on, uh, I think it was the Thursday of that week, um, Thursday or Friday. It was very shortly before the weekend. And he was ready to interview. And then he said, listen, can we move the interview to Monday? Like, I can't do this right now. And then he died that Sunday evening. So he was supposed to meet with them September 1st, and he died on August 31st. Um, Now, he did appear to have a drug issue, and I think we talked about the fact that that's not super uncommon in Erie. Um, In the early aughts, that wasn't uncommon in any small town in Pennsylvania. Um, or any city. I mean, it still isn't uncommon, um, but especially, you know, 2003 is what we're looking at. That was definitely, um, definitely common then. So we're kind of left with a bunch of questions here. Um, they did determine that it appeared to be a drug overdose, but they weren't sure if it was accidental or intentional. Um, So they're not sure if maybe added anxiety from the investigation led to an accidental overdose. He was trying to calm himself down before meeting with the police the next day. And there was something um, like worse in whatever he had or he took too much or whatever. Um, Was it some sort of cover up? Was he truly involved? Like one of the police theories said, and he just wanted to get away from it all or was it even an OD? Did something else happen? Um, and I really couldn't find many more details about it. So I don't know. So do you know where he was found unresponsive or in his home? It was in his home. Yeah. I don't remember who exactly found him, but I know that it was in his home. Um, so now it's just going to keep getting weirder. Here's more twists and turns. So remember Bill Rothstein? Of course you do, because we talked about him earlier. So at one point, he called 911 to give the following information. At 8645 Peach Street, which is his address, there was a frozen body in the garage in the freezer, which honestly gives me Big Sky vibes. And I don't know if any of you guys have watched Big Sky, but... It there was a big sky moment in there um, with the body in the garage in the freezer. So anyway, he called to report this frozen body and he said, quote, you might want to pick up a woman, Marjorie Deal Armstrong. 
he adamantly did not want to give details over the phone. He did say that he had dated a woman, Marge, and that she had wanted a body removed from her house. So he took it and hid it for her in a meat freezer in his garage. But he said he would give his full story and more details when they arrived at his house. So apparently Marge had told Bill that she murdered the guy and that he was dead in the house. So when police arrested Marge, she was sitting on her bed telling them to leave. She then began to say that Bill was the one who killed him and that she had nothing to do with it. Now, if we think back to a little bit that I said about Bill on last week's episode, um, there was a part where he was telling Marge to get rid of Jim and be with him. Um, Guess whose frozen body was in the garage? None other than James Roden, who went by Jim, Marge's partner of about ten and a half years. So, you know, that's a little sketch. Now, when she was arrested, she mumbled, they're going to get a lawsuit from me from my jail cell. Which kind of feels like a confession. Um... Like, she didn't say there's going to be a lawsuit when they find me innocent, um, but that she's going to give a lawsuit from the jail cell, which basically means, hey, you're going to find me guilty and then I'm going to press charges. That was just wild to, like, watch on the documentary. I mean, she's... I think I just mentioned it to you before. Maybe I said it on the podcast, but she was like really attractive when she was younger. Yeah. And then when she's like older and crazy and it's just she's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, it could be that she was saying, you know, that night they were going to keep her in a jail cell and that's when she was going to call a lawyer and make a lawsuit. But, you know, like we said last yeah, week, she mm-hmm. she was suing everybody she could. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It There's definitely some sketch there, um, like not some random dude, but your partner. And you ask your double ex fiance to help you hide it and. Then he calls the cops on you and it's, it's just crazy. So complicated love story, something like that. (laughs) So, uh, Bill claimed that Marge called him the night or morning at some point, like when normal people are sleeping, that she had killed him. Uh, she indicated that he was dead and begged him for help. Now, police kept asking Bill, like, did she say I killed him? Did she say he was dead? And he kept saying, well, I don't remember what she said, but she indicated that he was dead. And that felt sketchy, too. But um, he said he decided to help her because he felt sorry for her. I am sorry, but if my husband <laughs> called me or like... You know, Grace, your husband is one of my closest friends. If Ben called me and was like, listen, so I killed someone, I'm going to be like, um, I'm not putting myself in this situation. Like, that's what I said. He says, uh, because I said that I'm not a ride or die. (laughs) He was offended by that hypothetical answer. (laughs) 
Well, because everyone asks, right? <laughs> well, especially us, you know. But yeah, I I couldn't just I don't know. I mean, I guess clearly their brains are working a little bit differently and he has this intense love for her, so I guess I can almost like a Bonnie and Clyde sort of thing, but I don't But they're not even together. I mean, right. we're talking about our husbands, but she's been with this other guy for ten and a half years. So right. Right. And then he feels sorry for her. Like boohoo, Marge. Right. <laughs> right. So after feeling sorry for her, he decides to put the body in a safe place, which was this freezer in his garage, so they could decide what to do with it later. Um, Marge admits to finding Jim dead when she got home and stated that he had died by a gunshot wound. She believed Bill was the one who shot Jim. Um, so there's some more details and... I'm going to kind of skip over them for time, but if you guys watch the docu-series, you'll get a lot more information. Um, what was interesting to me is that when Bill was interviewed by the FBI agent, Jerry Clark, that I mentioned last week, he was willing to discuss details of Jim's body movement, um, you know, what he found, what he saw, what she indicated because he couldn't remember what she said whatever but as soon as brian wells was mentioned he absolutely shut down and he would not talk he said he had no relationship with wells and was very adamant that he was not comfortable discussing the heist or the murder even though he literally walked investigators through like brought investigators and their cameras into Marge's house and his house and physically walked room to room showing them oh here's where the body was here's where blood-stained other things were here's and then in my house this is where like he was willing to go through all of that but as soon as the Wells case was mentioned he shut down and just said I'm not comfortable discussing this I couldn't really place it until just now, but he gives me like serious Edmund Kemper vibes because he can't shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong, though. And truly, like if you guys haven't seen this docuseries, you have to watch it. I think they're maybe 45 minutes to an hour each, so it might be a four hour watch time. Um to watch all worth four it. parts so worth it he seriously does not shut up he just he wants them to know how smart he is yes exactly because remember he's the one that said yeah. to this fbi agent that he was the smartest one in the room you know saying i'm smarter than you but you're an fbi agent so yep yeah it was just very interesting. He also mentioned with Jim's murder that like how he cleaned it up, what products they used, but again, wouldn't talk about the Brian Wells case. So hmm. um, he also told investigators about his own attempt at suicide after these events and showed them his suicide note. And I'm going to try to find a picture of that to put up on our blog. Um, I looked for it quickly and couldn't find it, but I'm going to search again. Um, so the suicide note at the very top had the word police underlined and then had a list of five things. The numbers are written as a numeral and then a single end parenthesis, like that right parenthesis. 
for all five numbers, and it says, one, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Two, the body in the freezer in the garage is Jim Roden. Three, I did not kill nor participate in his death. Four, my apologies to those who cared for or about me. I am sorry that I let them down. Five, I am sorry to leave you this mess. And then he signed it, Bill Rothstein. Why, why do you need to mention that your suicide has nothing to do with the Wells case? Am I the only one that's questioning that? Like, what? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what to say about that. Like, <laughs> and they talk about it. I think it was on the docuseries, but it may have been on the Buzzfeed unsolved episode. Um, but it was definitely something that I heard. It wasn't something that I read where they were saying, why would you mention the Wells case? No one is going to think that somebody that dies by suicide is related to this bank heist. If, if they truly are unrelated, no one's going to look at those. You know, he didn't have a bomb on him. I think it was, I think he tried to cut and bleed out. Um, if I remember correctly, um, because they found razor blades and blood in the bathroom. And that's what led him to explaining this attempt. Um, but I like no one would have connected those pieces. So why do you need to point out that they're not connected unless they are? So. So he showed police his suicide note, even though. Uh-huh. Right. So uh-huh. he showed it to them. They didn't find it. So even though he didn't commit suicide. <laughs> He yeah. showed them the note that says it has nothing to do with the Wells case, which he won't talk about. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Okay, Bill. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and I forget the exact timing of when that attempt was versus when they were trying to talk to him. Um, but I'm 99% sure it was before they tried to talk to him. So, okay. if, you know, if it was yeah. after and they had been asking him about the Wells case and then, you know... I could see it more, but I'm pretty sure this was from before any of that. Yeah, I was under that impression because as well. It would have been before they even knew that the body in the garage was Jim. Right. If it's identifying it in the note. Um, Right. Take note of how the numbers are written, too. It's the same way that we saw the numbers on all of the heist notes. And it's not that common to just do a number and the parenthesis. A lot of times people will do a dash, a period. When you're handwriting something, you do it quickly. Like I made yeah. a list of all of our episodes so far on a piece of paper and I wrote like one dash Cindy song. Like it. Yeah. Yeah. You're typically if you're especially if you're rushing, you're going to keep your hand moving left to right. Because you you don't want to disrupt what you're doing. So to do a parenthesis, you have to stop, go up, down, or down, up, depending on how you're making your parenthesis, and then get back to writing. So it's a little thing, but when it's the same in both of these notes, it's interesting. I got a little hung up on making a parenthesis from, like... What do you say? From down to up? Yeah. Does that mean you're a psychopath? Who does that? <laughs> <laughs> oh. It just seems 
awkward sorry that's no that could be no. a whole other thing that's <laughs> like there are people that write numbers from bottom to top um like sevens they'll start at the bottom and do the slant and then the top fives they'll do the circle and then the line and then the top i've seen it Man. A lot of it is like I see a lot of it from my students. Honestly, that's uh, the fourth one. Um, the signs, uh, hurting animals. Yes. Uh, head injury. Yeah. Peeing the bed and <laughs> writing from bottom to top. Okay, fair. <laughs> um. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So. Um, Now, in an interview with Bill's brother, he said he did know that Bill had attempted suicide, but there was no mention of Marge. Um, Right before the heist, his siblings wanted to sell the house that he was living in. So this is Bill's siblings wanted to sell the house Bill was living in, which was also the house that they all grew up in. But Bill didn't want to move. He told his family he listed the house for 90,000, but he actually listed it for 250,000, which... Aside from being a ridiculous amount of money for that house in that location in 2003 is also conveniently the amount of money that Wells was supposed to get from the bank heist. So hmm. do we- he totally could have gotten 250 for it today. Just saying. Well, yeah. Freaking housing market. <laughs> right. That's why I'm glad I already bought because I'm glad to not have that headache right now. I hate you. <laughs> I only said that because your husband and I have talked about it. Um, oh, God. So after further investigation, the FBI officially separated the Wells and Roden cases. Marge publicly stated that Bill should be charged with the murder of Brian Wells and continued to claim that he must have been the one to kill Jim. Bill's best friend says that in the last conversations he had with Bill, he became really mean. Um, He was different. He wasn't himself and that something had changed. Now, after all of this, Marge eventually confesses to killing Jim because they fought over another woman. Uh, One of her cellmates was interviewed and said of Marge, quote, the woman is a master manipulator. If the DA got too close, she would just play the crazy card. And then she said she had a conversation with Marge where Marge said, you go sit in some some mental institution where the food's better. And that's basically what Marge said about why she played the crazy card. Bold assumption about the food being better. Well, I think she had been in mental institutions before. I'm fairly certain from the other murder she claimed, because the one she claimed self-defense. Oh. But I think there was, um, uh, yeah, a plea of mentally unstable or something like that. So I think she did spend time in a mental institution. Okay. So. So she would know. Yeah. Um. How much longer do we have on here? Do we want to just keep going? It's only we only yeah, have about like two pages. Two pages worth. So it would only be mm-hmm. another couple. Okay, so we'll be over an hour, but sure. it'll be fine. All right. Yeah. So if we're keeping track, Marge has now confessed to murdering two people. Full out confessions. Murdered two people. 
On the topic of Jim, Rothstein told Marge that he couldn't get Jim out of the freezer until he finished a business project. Now, she's pretty sure that this business project was the bank heist. Marge continued to try to outsmart the investigators. She offered to give police information about a cold case involving Ken, who we talked about in the last episode, which was her fishing buddy. Um, But this pun is not intended. It was a red herring. Not because he was her fishing buddy, but just because it wasn't a real crime. I'm going to stop making puns. That was bad. That was really bad. Um, But she kept saying that she had other information about these other crimes. Ultimately, they knew that they had to keep her happy and just kind of go with it because at any point she could just stop talking and stop giving information. So it's probably not uncommon to try to confuse investigators if you're being charged with a crime. But the fact that she's throwing all this out there to try to confuse them, kind of just like all that fake stuff on the bomb. Right. Just to confuse people. Right. Keep them guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And if we think back to some of the things, you know, um, like that they think some of the traits that they think the killer had, it was thinking they could outsmart people and law enforcement. So she and Bill are both showing. Yeah. Right. Bill or Marge. Right attempts at least if not i mean law enforcement isn't is trained in this kind of stuff so they know how to recognize it they're gonna listen to whatever you say doesn't mean they believe every word that comes out of your mouth um sure you know they're they're trained especially when you're looking at fbi investigators and you're up in pennsylvania state troopers and all that kind of stuff i mean they're very well trained and educated people Um, so yeah, um, in investigating this case for the Netflix docuseries reporter, Trey Borziarelli. No, let me try that again. Reporter Trey Borzaliri, which I still may be saying that incorrectly, but I'm thinking it's Borzaliri, um, actually got video footage of a blue van at Bill's house. Um, it appears this van was towed away immediately after the heist and was not returned until he was cleared as a suspect. Um, Marge claimed that she saw him driving that truck, sorry, that van around on August 28th. And she was very clear to say that she doesn't think he was driving it. She knows he was driving it. Lamont King thinks it's the same vehicle that he saw. Um, If you think back to what we talked about last episode, there was that boxy, dusty blue van that he saw approaching one of the scavenger hunt locations that kind of turned around and sped off. Um, Lamont King also said coincidence does not happen in homicide investigations. It's too convenient. You have a van that matches it was towed away, didn't return till you were cleared, and you have this thought that you can outsmart anyone. So it's it's definitely a little sketchy. Um, now, there were some jailhouse informants, which 
If only for the jailhouse informants, you guys seriously need to watch this docuseries because the way that these women talk about Marge is seriously worth all of it. Um, Some of these jailhouse informants said that Marge told them that she killed Jim because he was going to uncover the pizza bomb plot. Of course, she claimed this was a lie. Everybody is out to get her, you know, typical victim narcissist attitude um she did however mention wells to these other jailhouse informants saying quote it's not like we didn't measure his neck for the collar unquote which doesn't line up if there was a struggle to get it on him but there could still be more we don't know um but that of course does imply that he was in on the plot if they were able to measure it before they made it um I don't think human necks vary that greatly. So if you just make it big enough, I think you're going to be okay. But what if you're like Ben and you don't have a neck? (laughs) (laughs) Well, then they would have had to pick someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jesus. So... When they went through Ken's house, remember Ken is the the friend, um, they did find magazines about constructing bombs, but there was no other evidence in the house that anything had been constructed there or that he had done anything with that. Um, Ken did admit that Marge solicited him to kill her dad and that she was robbing the bank to get the money to get him to do it, but then follows it up with a claim that he never would have really done it. He just wanted to see what kind of money he could get from her. Which, fair. Like, if someone already has a jail record and they're willing to rob a bank and give me a bunch of money, I might lie and say I would do something. Like, you can give me money. Sarah for hire. (laughs) So I don't remember what her inheritance was that she was, like, trying to get her dad to stop spending. But, like, why not just rob the bank and keep the money so and everyone lives (laughs) too easy too easy it needs to be convoluted because this narcissistic attitude in the in the profile um no but i think he was a i mean he was a millionaire so you know a couple hundred thousand or a couple thousand wasn't going to do it she wanted the millions because he was giving it away to like i said last week charities and churches and neighbors and friends who needed it um but she just wanted it how dare he he's the worst person ever i think one of my favorite parts about it too is and i think i mentioned it last week when they interview her dad on the netflix docuseries he even says, yeah, I wrote her out of the will a long time ago. She was never going to get any of it anyway. Like, yeah. Okay, cool. Solid. So all of this was literally for nothing, if that was her reasoning. Um, but Ken confessed to knowing the whole scheme, claiming that Marge was the mastermind. Um, In a full confession, Ken discussed what happened. He alleged that Bill, Marge, Stockton, which, remember, was another friend, Panetti, the other worker from the pizza shop, and Wells were all at a pre-robbery meeting. 
Um, law enforcement originally did not record this confession, but Trey, who did the documentary, called him and got this confession on tape. Um, when the pizzas were delivered, Brian appeared terrified and he started to run. And that's when Bill grabbed the gun, shot into the air, and then Marge and Stockton put the bomb on Wells while he said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And then allegedly Marge is the one who told Wells to tell the quote black guy story that we talked about earlier. Then in a car, a good distance from the bank, Marge and Ken took turns watching the robbery take place with binoculars. They then drove to Bill's house and switched vehicles, which is when Marge gets on the highway going the wrong direction, looking for one of the scavenger hunt sites. And that was obviously reported by a bunch of people because there was a car driving the wrong way. Now, she was on the berm. She wasn't in a lane, so at least she wasn't, like, hitting other cars. But regardless... Oh, my God. That's still not... Yeah, I'd be calling 911 also. Um, Ken said the bomb was supposed to be a fake, and Stockton corroborated that confession. Um, neither of them knew who the mastermind was or the degree of involvement that Panetti had in it. They were both under the impression that Brian was in on the heist, but had no idea how he got involved or when he agreed to it. And remember last week when we talked about um, the uh, prostitute that he had befriended and, you know, legitimately befriended. Um, we talked about how she said he knew nothing and that she was the one that gave his name and she carries a lot of that guilt. Um, so kind of some differing ideas of whether he knew or didn't know. Um, but Marge did go to trial for the heist part of the crime and the jury found her guilty after deliberating for a day and a half. Like that's really not very long, um, of a deliberation. So she was sentenced to life plus 30 and she maintained her innocence for the remainder of her life. She was only found guilty on charges related to the heist, Nobody has actually ever been charged for Brian's murder. So the piece here that we're really looking at is, was he an innocent bystander or was he involved? Because that really takes us to a place of, was this a suicide mission or was it truly a murder? And I'm not going to read through like all of these things here. We can just kind of talk about it and then I'll do the last paragraph. I feel like whether he was involved initially or not, he didn't. I don't think he expected to blow up. I don't think it was any sort of suicide mission just based on what I know it. I think either way he was murdered. Yeah, I agree. Um, I truly don't think that he knew what was happening. Um, and I think something that this group and I'm going to go ahead and say that Marge and Bill are both involved, whether the rest of them are or not. Um, I'm definitely saying that Marge and Bill were knowingly involved. Um, 
No, but Bill said specifically that he was not involved. Oh, right. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Nothing to do with the Wells case. Well, you know, he, and yeah. Marge, Marge <laughs> insisted that Bill killed Jim and then confessed to killing Jim. So, you know, we can always 100% trust her word when she says she's not involved. Um, yeah. So. Despite all of that, I think they kind of hurt themselves in the fact that they went to this remote location to put the bomb around his neck because PSP pulled really good evidence from there that proved he was there and there was a struggle. If he was in on it, there wouldn't have been a struggle. Yeah. And I feel like you can't fake a struggle. And why would you if it's a remote location and you're on board? Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I think Jessica Hoopsick's confession just saying, you know, hey, I gave his name. He knew nothing. He definitely wasn't at a meeting the night before. You know, I think that goes a long way, too, because... I can't imagine doing that, holding that secret, and then coming out later and saying, this is what happened if it wasn't true. Like, why would you put yourself in that position if it wasn't the case? Yeah, that's true. Um, And even if he knew, like, a small part of it, I mean, like I said, either way, he was murdered. Even if he knew a small part of it, he. Yeah, I don't think he wanted any part of it. If anything, they were just trying to force him into it and telling him certain things. Right. But he didn't really want to. That's just how it seems to me. Yeah, no, I'm definitely with you. Um, And I mean, you've got the raw news footage that shows what he's saying and how he's acting and yeah he was really calm at first but i mean if they told him it was a fake bomb yeah you know Ugh. yeah so this is kind of a a weird one to throw on our podcast as a cold case um so there's really nowhere to report any tips because it's all lumped in as the bank heist. So it's considered closed. Um, but I am really curious to see what our listeners think about this case and the involvement of different people. So definitely make sure to check out our blog posts and socials to weigh in on this case. So how is it closed if no one was charged for the murder? Because there's still this separate crime Unless police have just resigned to he was involved suicide mission, which just doesn't seem likely. I mean, I'm sure his family wants justice. So I think the fact that Marge was convicted and then, you know, died in prison serving her time for the heist and the planning of the heist, I think it just got lumped in as part of the planning of the heist. Even though the robbery and the murder are two different things, they just got lumped into one. But we're left with so many questions that 
you know, it's kind of like we talked about with uh, the Babes in the Woods case where we kind of pretty much know what happened, but we still don't know how or why or, you know, what actually occurred. We just kind of know what the media seems to show. Um, So I don't know if it's even technically considered to be closed because I don't think it was ever a case. I don't think Mm. the murder case itself ever existed. I couldn't find anything on it. So, like, I really feel for his family. Yeah, me too. Because it's just like, he just seems to kind of have been, like, glazed over. And this was a person. This is a loss of life. Right. And that's a big part of why I chose to cover it, even though it's not technically a cold case. Um, I think I wanted to get his name out and let his name kind of take precedence over Marge's name because Marge's name tends to overshadow all of it. Yeah, that's a really good point because like Evil Genius was really focused on her her and Brian was kind of a like secondary character. So when you first mentioned this case, I was kind of like, kind of sounds familiar, but I'm not really sure. But yeah, I mean, it just sucks. Yeah. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. The music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out. In the mid-1980s, one Texas city was gripped in fear. One by one, women were disappearing. They were eventually found, but not the way anyone wanted. From the pages of the reporter's notebook, comes an in-depth look at an extraordinary era of fear. We focus on seven cold cases among a long string of murders, and we think we know who the killer was. You'll hear from some of the victims' families and friends and people who work these cases, along with a Pennsylvania expert in the behaviors of serial killers. Unfortunately, with serial killing, The more killing that you see, the more clues that you get at the expense of human life. More than 35 years later, the families are still waiting for proof, still waiting for justice, still waiting for peace. Search for Still from the Reporter's Notebook wherever you get your podcasts.